Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleagues Anusha Kalyan and Stephen Bush. In this episode, we talk about the new coronavirus restrictions and you ask us, what do you think of the covert human intelligence sources bill and should Labour have voted against it? So we're recording on a day when it's been announced that there'll be more lockdown measures for more parts of England arriving on Monday. And already in Scotland, Edinburgh and Glasgow in its central belt will have restaurants, pubs and bars closed from from 6pm from Friday. So that means that most of the country or a lot of the country with many parts of of England to, to follow will be under stricter lockdowns. And this has been announced with a new three-tier system, giving different levels of graveness to the restrictions for, for each tier. But one of the controversies of these announcements is that it appears that leaders in areas of the north where these measures will, will have an impact hadn't seemed to have been consulted before the story was briefed and reported on the front page of the Times. Stephen, what, what implications does the way that this news has come out have for the, the lockdown measures themselves? Well, I think so. I think the fact of the leaking themselves is kind of like, is outside the control of the government, right? Like, government is this huge thing where loads of people talk to people and, like, any kind of consultative process will lead to leaks, which, I mean, is why, and I mean this with the greatest respect to the Times, so you've got a lot of detail than, than no one had had before, but it's why, I mean, basically, it's almost like it's been, like, every, like, news outlet's turn to get this scoop about us moving to a more simple system where you're like oh i'm in a tier one area i'm in a tier two area i'm in a tier three area like everyone has had a version of this scoop basically so that's not because of like deliberately leaking. that's just because of the the way that like the state operates what is revealing is that this is the first time that most of these local government people have heard of it and then so in a way like the revealing thing is not so much that it leaks to the times it, it's not leaking to the Yorkshire Post, the Manchester Evening News, and when it does leak, it has leaked to some of those those outlets. Actually, when it when it has leaked to those outlets, it's leaked to them via their Westminster end, right? Whereas the reason why this club unavoidably leaks is right, you get like a civil servant consulting on it, and then they say to their mate, "Oh, you'd never guess what I'm working on," and then their mate, like you know, goes for a scone or something with a 
with the political editor of a current affairs magazine and and they go, oh, that's very interesting. So what are your plans about lockdown? And they go, oh, well, we're moving towards tears. But what's really striking is the, the reason why these leaks are only happening at the London end is because there is, we have an incredibly centralising government that is not particularly interested in consulting. Yeah, I mean, it's not even particularly interested in consulting um, the bits of local government it directly controls, let alone the bits that it doesn't. I mean, yeah, one of the, like, I think, fascinating sort of, political choices is that they're not even providing a I, I'm not saying it would be defensible if like they were providing a Rolls Royce level of, of briefing and understanding to like Ben Houchin and and Andy Street but you would at least kind of understand it from a raw political perspective this is a kind of more sort of we just have distaste for local government and we yeah our instinct is to is, is command and control and I think that's one of the reasons well I mean the, I guess the big question is what it is the in 19 of the 20 areas that have been in lockdown for longer than two months, the rates are continuing to climb. And it's not clear why that is, but I mean, it's a bit like what we were saying a couple of weeks ago about like, well, it can't have helped that instead of like doing test and trace, we had like the internal market bill, then um, we didn't extend the transition period. And it's kind of like that, right? It can't help, can it? Logically, it must increase the confusion that the local government which is really the only like final mile bit of the British state other than the benefit system is like, what's going on? Tears first. I've heard of it. Yeah. I mean, what what you said about control from the center, I think is, is really true. And it makes me think that this government is just, again, I know we've spoken about this, but there's such a gap between the myth that it has of itself and the way that it actually acts. So, you know, I, I know that briefings and leaks and things can happen in all sorts of ways that, that are beyond the control of the people who actually are in charge of forming an, or, or, or announcing the policies. But it's just so interesting that when these stories come out, it does seem that there's very, very little warning or consultation or, or or just you know a sliver of respect for for local government and the mayors who will ultimately be in charge of these policies actually being effective you know you need their goodwill um and it's just so interesting from a government that i mean in the tory manifesto in 2019 there was a line that said that we don't believe everything should flow from whitehall and you know it should be the end of government from from london and we should trust our communities to to decide you know what's best for themselves. And that was in the part about the levelling up agenda, which was a key plank of what they wanted people to vote for them on. And just the way that they treat local government, the way that they funded it as well, and the way that they leave out the mayors from decision-making and leader of councils in areas where local lockdowns are going to come into play. And, you know, this has happened throughout the coronavirus crisis. You know, they, they promised that they would give whatever it takes or whatever is necessary to councils, but they haven't reimbursed everything and they, they've, they've rode back from that. As well as that, they also, they had some problems giving detailed coronavirus case data to local authorities. You know, Do you remember in the first sort of times of, of local lockdowns looming, councils weren't, weren't in receipt of all of the facts about the data in, in their local areas. That was because of an ever-centralising government Regardless of what these leaks or the actual tier system means for the local lockdown measures, the way that this government has gone about it just reveals so much about it. You know, the mask is just slipping from this government that pretends that it cares about these areas that perhaps traditionally weren't represented by conservative governments. But it doesn't. It just doesn't. I mean, I suppose the difficult thing with discussing this on a podcast is that it feels like the problems are are quite obvious to anyone who's been following the news at all. 
and the implications in the long term are also quite obvious, but it doesn't really make them any less serious. I thought that Lisa Nandy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, did a very good interview on this on Robert Peston's program last night on ITV, where she was talking, I think this will be a theme in the coming weeks and months and possibly a huge one in the next decade as we look back on how the government handled this. But she was sort of zooming out on the the local lockdowns and how they have been implemented to talk sort of more generally about a north-south divide and the growing feeling of resentment in those communities. I think on a personal level, it stresses me out a bit because my geography of the north of England is really, really bad. And I feel like I'm not as, as bad a culprit as some people because I'm not from the south of England or from London, even though I now live here. But I think, you know, there's a, there is a, a general theme of people referring to the north like some sort of unknown blob and kind of struggling to differentiate between particular areas and the particular measures that have been imposed in different parts. And I think that that maybe has a small part to play, dare I suggest, in the way politicians really, really struggle to sort of say the difference between what you can do in a pub in Wigan and a, and a pub elsewhere, as like Boris Johnson and other ministers have really struggled. But yeah, I think that it is just a, an irony of this situation that this was the government's stated aim before the election and in some ways you know one of the big drivers of our of of all our big political moves in the last decade or so that there is this you know growing feeling of resentment people feeling increasingly detached from the center of power in this country and in a way you know this government stood on a platform of trying to of showing that they understood that feeling of disconnect and trying to address it. But this is just massively exacerbating that problem, not just in terms of people feeling like they're, you know, they're being patronised, that their local governments aren't being listened to, local leaders aren't being listened to, that they're having a much worse time than people in, you know, at the moment than people in London, you know, they can't go to the pub or whatever. But I think also like the economic impact of it that, I mean, things are maybe changing slightly because it's different demographics that are catching the virus. It's sort of younger people, which is seeing them the biggest increase in cases at the moment, even though that's changing slightly again. But certainly at the beginning, it was, you know, it was just this double-edged sword of people who were from sort of the the most disadvantaged socioeconomic groups who were most likely to be catching the virus but also to be living in communities that were worst affected by it and so I just think that you know this this ultimately will just have the effect of leveling down areas that were already leveled down and Stephen you mentioned in in a piece I think within the past week that the government's saving grace is that Plenty of people still ultimately believe that the coronavirus poses such a big challenge that even though they haven't done a great job, lots of people don't actually fundamentally believe that any government could have done it much better. So maybe people will, to a degree, think that this was a kind of inevitable consequence of the virus, but it just is is nevertheless just like the just the cruel irony of a government trying to address all these problems of of you know a huge disconnect in in poorer parts of the country and in and parts parts further literally from London and then a virus that is kind of ravaging those areas and and just widening that gap between London and and the north that blob 
So this morning when I was putting the, the email together, it was one of the things I was actually really struck, like how hard it was to find out width of, you know, like uh, the number of outlets where it was just like the north. Mm. Mm. Now, one, you know, I mean, I have, you know, very good friends, some of whom actually listen to this podcast, but who will bore on for ages about the fact that they don't, they don't believe that, that any of the cities that are in this lockdown are actually in the north. But it's just like the thing where it's like, it's not. It, it does reflect the kind of like, which is both like a product of deliberate media choices, but it also, yeah, people do take their cue from leaders, right? Both inside institutions and without them. And the fact that visibly it's, oh yeah, the North, that's a thing that's been locked down, mm. has clearly been transmitted to the top. But I also suspect that is one of the reasons why, as you've shown in your work, and it's one of, one of the reasons why people aren't observing self-isolation is they literally can't afford to. But I suspect the other thing is that because where these lockdowns are actually happening is being communicated so badly, partly by the government, but also just partly by us as an industry, it must be a factor as well. And then you add to that the fact that, you know, everyone is tired and miserable of lockdown and kind of no wonder it's not happening. On a related note, I think another thing I notice similarly when, when I'm doing Morning Call in particular is the difficulty when you read news pieces on places like the BBC or, or any other outlet. It's not really specifically a BBC problem. Like the difficulty working out what people mean when they say this country it's definitely a problem that news outlets refer to the United Kingdom when they mean England and vice versa, but mainly in the other direction where people, where you kind of assume while you're writing your copy that something the government has said refers to the whole of the United Kingdom, but it doesn't, it only refers to England. And it's amazing. I think that there's a, maybe I'm just being cynical, but I think that possibly copywriters deliberately say this country to obscure the fact that they don't actually know whether things apply to only England or the UK. And that, I suppose, is symptomatic of, of the broader problem because I know I find it annoying, but I also know that lots of our readers want us to be really specific about where specific rules apply. And certainly I, I wonder about the way that whether people living in the North also just feel in general like their concerns haven't been amplified to a sufficient degree because everyone who's reporting on these things is doing so out of London and I'm sure that we're all guilty of it and it's possibly unavoidable that if you are reporting from London and also not leaving the house much the way most of us aren't at the moment you're you're kind of an inevitably colored your reporting is colored by your own experience and you're seeing it through the prism of the of the you know the experience of the virus in London and maybe you know since that is you know reflected just across media outlets except for you know their individual you know northern reporter I think maybe people are also feeling that disconnect when they see their their situation being reported on as though it's kind of other and not something that you know people are experiencing on the ground when they're talking about it I do think, you know, some of that is, a, is is inevitable for the reason you described. But I do also think it, it it's fascinating because it's both the biggest argument for Scottish independence, but it's also, crucially, their biggest strategic asset. In the, one of the reasons, so one of the reasons why Nicola Sturgeon is seen as having handled the crisis better than Boris Johnson is in Scotland does have a lower death rate. It's still very high. Like Wales actually does have quite a low death rate per, per capita. But, you know, like, but, you know, they have made this better and their communications just have been better. Right. You can you can see that through the very simple metric of asking people in the two countries whether or not they understand. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, about their level of understanding of the rules in place. But I do think the other thing is that because, as you say, this kind of like this country thing where I, I suspect you're right, that is a cheat where people kind of be like, well, I, 
I'm not technically wrong if I write this country, does mean that as well as the things that they have done undoubtedly better, yeah, from the small things like maintaining their press conferences, Sturgeon sort of wearing a mask at all times and demonstrating that very early on, they also do just have this thing where because Scotland is ignored because the majority of eyeballs and even the BBC, which, you know, you can argue shouldn't do this, but 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 is led by eyeballs, doesn't cover what goes on in Scotland on, you know, it's, well, I was about to say it's British, but I mean, it's English thing. And that kind of speaks to, I mean, just speak to the central problem of our constitutional settlement, right? Which is, it's just really hard to keep your policy together when like one part of your country is like so much larger than the others. And it does lead to both asymmetries of power, but also crucially asymmetries of scrutiny, which I think we are both seeing how that means the government gets an easy ride on in terms of some of its behaviour, but I also think probably makes it harder for them to succeed in their political project of keeping Scotland in the United Kingdom. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask, you ask us. us. This question is from Jake Pitt. Thanks, Jake. What do you think of the Covert Human Intelligence Sources Criminal Conduct Bill? And should Labour have voted against it? So this bill, I think it was the second reading earlier this week. And I think that it constituted the second rebellion on the Labour benches as well, if that's right. But 20 Labour MPs rebelled against their party leadership and voted against this this bill, whereas Keir Starmer wanted them to abstain. Yeah, so this is, um, yeah, the, the purpose of the bill, basically there, there, there are two arguable headlines on this bill, right? Headline one is this bill regulates the activities of the security services when they are engaging in law-breaking. So to use something I've written and brought on about in this podcast before, spy cops, when you had the police infiltrating political groups, predominantly the left-wing groups, you had police officers who impregnated women while they were under deep cover. The women in question, in my view, rightly believed they did not have the ability to give informed consent, and there was a huge legal case on it, right? So there's, there's that element of it, like the kind of regulation of all of that, and arguably that's one headline you could say that these measures have and headline two is basically well it makes it easier rather than harder for people to engage in for the security service to engage in that kind of bad behavior 
Now, the Labour Party has whipped to abstain on it. Yeah, their kind of headline argument is, well, because broadly they think it's useful and worthwhile to regulate the security services in this space, which I think is true, but they do not agree with the bill as it stands, and so they will seek to amend in committee stage. Now, of course, the political rationale is and they want to be able to have the argument of going, we're not in favour of, you know, criminalising our boys or binding the security services' hands behind their back. We had concerns, which is why we, yeah, yeah. And that's like the, that's the actual political argument for it, which I think like in a vacuum, open and shut makes sense. I guess my objection to it is that I think the direction of travel is at some point in this parliament, there is going to come a bill to take us out of the ECHR or at the very least to repeal parts of the Human Rights Act. Seeing as at that point the Labour Party is going to be having all of these fights it doesn't want to have regardless, right? Because, like, even if you decide and, like, you think it is okay to abstain on whether or not on repealing the Human Rights Act, the Parliamentary Party is not in that place, let alone the party in the country. So the Labour leadership can't be in that place. So I kind of think that, like, the point of abstaining to not have a fight is if you can actually not have the fight. Whereas if you're going to have it, you might as well just have it rather than kind of being like, we're not having it, we're not having it, we're not having it. Oh, yeah, now we're having it anyway. It's sort of my kind of like view. But, you know, I don't know what, what, what you two sort of make of it. Well, so I think that this points to a bigger theme that we're going to see more of um, in this parliament of both parties playing politics, basically, with just the the way that their opposing party votes on things. So even before this, Conservative MPs speaking about the challenges ahead for this government, all actually, like the ones I've been speaking to, all similarly expressed the same kind of concern over the the tricky politics of Labour putting down opposition day votes that the government has to, that the Conservative MPs feel obliged to vote against. They basically have to vote against. They're not going to randomly vote in Labour legislation. But it creates very tricky headlines for them that, you know, it's basically the Conservatives voted against this unequivocally good thing. Then on social media, that can be kind of misconstrued. And then by the same token, now the Conservatives have become, I don't think this is entirely new, like it, it has happened before, but the Conservatives in their social media game have become very, very good at saying Labour voted against X, Labour, you know, Labour doesn't support Y. So, you know, for example, by voting against the internal market bill, Labour was, you know, voting, was siding with the EU over over Britain or whatever because it didn't vote against something. It didn't vote for for the bill. This is clearly just going to be a a factor of our political conversation for the next few years that people will look at how parties voted and also how individual MPs voted without necessarily understanding the full context of whipping. And so we've already seen on, on sites like, you know, They Work For You, where you can see how an MP has voted on something and that's used as a gauge of their position on all sorts of issues. It often paints a, a kind of partial picture because you need to know the full context of, you know, where the, what, whether they were planning an amendment. Did they vote against that amendment because the government had another one that incorporated those things, but, you know, improved on them? You know, did they vote against that thing that looks like a good thing because it was actually totally unworkable or beyond the scope of, of that bill? There's so many sort of more boring reasons why MPs or parties as wholes wouldn't vote for something and I think it all ties into the politics of that but in this specific case 
It's been interesting, like Labour members, I know, you know, Labour Twitter is not the real world and not even necessarily the whole of the Labour Party, but people have been having lots of, I think, quite good faith and serious debates about this because, you know, the argument from the Labour leadership is that you should abstain on this because ultimately, like you were saying, Stephen, ultimately it is a good thing to have legislation on this and to clarify it, but they're not happy with all of it. So they plan on, you know, abstaining and then bringing in amendments later on to improve it. But as has been pointed out, Labour equally could have voted against it and it would still have moved through the Commons and then they could still have tabled amendments at a later point so it is it is actually more about the optics of it and no one has put it in these dark terms so feel free to jump in either of you if you if you fundamentally disagree but it's it is basically that the labor leadership doesn't want to look like it is you know not supporting the intelligence services it's like you know that it's being insufficiently patriotic and basically doesn't want to have the fight that was kind of the impression that i got with this covert intelligence bill and also with last month's overseas operations bill which kind of covered sort of a similar theme you know about prosecutions for British soldiers who have been serving abroad and sort of trying to protect them from that. I do think that Keir Starmer's trying to to walk a sort of tightly balanced line for bills like this particularly when they have human rights implications or at least human rights groups and the Socialist campaign group MPs who have voted against these bills have brought up brought up sort of problems in terms of, of human rights abuses that potentially could arise from voting for these bills, because you can see that that is a wedge that the Tory party is trying to create both between themselves and the Labour Party, but also trying to sort of exploit the divisions within the Labour Party on these issues. I thought that the sort of main kind of culture warsy section of Boris Johnson's conference speech this week was when he he, I mean, he tried to sort of palm off the description on Pretty Patel, but he was talking, I think he was talking about sort of lefty lawyers and do-gooders. And you can tell that he's kind of trying to allude to that human rights. I suppose they would see it as a kind of blob, you know, people who <laughs> people who want to defend the rights of, of, of the kind of the kind of issues that have been brought up in bills like these. And so you can kind of tell that that's sort of a rich theme for the Conservative Party, or at least it views it as a rich theme to to try and to try and pursue. The suggestion is that the thinking behind abstaining on on bills like this and also trying to avoid a fight with your own MPs on them unsuccessfully is there's a there's a further reason behind that and it's a political reason. And it's just that fundamental question: like, what do you do if you're the Labour Party in opposition? when ultimately it doesn't matter whether you vote against something or abstain on it, because unless something changes on the Tory benches, ultimately, you know, it's not going to make a difference. So it's very much just Mm. what you're saying to the country and to Parliament about your values as a party. And that's where the fundamental disagreement is. But, you know, I think that we've seen some of the the younger MPs to the left who joined Labour in the 2019 intake, like Zara Sultana and Nadia Whittam, coming into their own really in the past few weeks. They've already had quite a big profile, but I think that people towards the centre of the Labour Party have, have been a bit sneering at them on occasion because they, they're kind of young and sincere and, and have got some kind of aspects of the detail occasionally wrong. But on this, you know, they're in a position where everyone knows where they stand they're not doing Keir Starmer's grand old strategy of trying to unite a diverse voter coalition they're just sort of representing the values that they were elected on and people know what kind of 
politics they already have. So they're they're very much able to just stand up in the House of Commons and say, well, no, I'm not going to, to let this fly. This is not what I believe and it's not what we as Labour stand for. And I think both of them, I thought Zara Sultana's speech where she invoked the 1989 murder of Pat Finucane, who was a lawyer from Belfast, who was shot by loyalist paramilitaries. And it turned out that that had been in collusion with the British state I thought her her speech on it was really detailed and really an example of her at her strongest and yeah and as you say Stephen like that was a I think the strongest example of what a problem Keir Starmer would have over this because you ultimately don't want to give the Conservatives or maybe you do but you don't want to give the Conservatives the easy Facebook thing of you know Labour just voted against our troops or our veterans or our intelligence services but like that's also plainly like not where the party is. And you you can see a, a, a very principled speech from Zara Sultana sort of making the case very clearly for why it's potentially not a good position for Labour to be in. Yeah, and I say this as someone who thinks that like Labour should have voted against the bill. But I think that from the, the position of what they want to achieve politically and electorally, actually the Zara Sultana stuff is fine because it's like that core of 20 sort of ultras within the campaign group who do not have the ability to launch a a leadership challenge and have lost and because like the vast majority of political journalism is not about policy about horse race it gives like an opportunity to the extent anyone normal notices this the thing that people notice is minority of labor mps rebel against labor leadership having robust position on security right that is a win in the narrow confines of of, of what they want to achieve with these votes the problem with other stuff, right, is that is basically that looks great provided you win, right? It's the same with like David Cameron's various fights on social issues with his right. That was fine because he won those fights. But yeah, and this is like the difference between this and say the welfare bill, right? The reason why the welfare bill abstention from a political tactics perspective didn't work, parking and both of these, the arguments about the rightness of them, right, where it was the exact same political calculation is broadly Harriet Harman couldn't take the PLP with her. There was a rebellion significantly outside the usual suspects. And as a result of that, the walls came tumbling down. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleagues Anusha Kellyan and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.